This is the Celebration Rock Podcast. I am Steve Hyden, and uh, this is a special, uh, I guess, bonus edition of the show. Uh, as you probably know, Chris Cornell uh, died on Thursday. Uh, it has been officially ruled a suicide. And I just wanted to do just like a short, I guess, tribute episode to him, sort of like a... I don't know. We're calling this a live album. There's no production on this episode. Uh, I'm just going to be talking uh, with my producer, Derek, and uh, we're going to be calling uh, Hanif Abdurabkeeb here in a couple minutes to talk to him as well. Um, I just felt like this was a, it's a pretty momentous uh, event, especially if you are a person that grew up in the 90s, if you love 90s rock. Uh, you know, Chris Cornell was one of the towering figures of rock music uh, from that era. And uh, just the fact that he's gone at 52 at a, at a time when it seemed like he had a lot to live for, that there was a lot going on with him. You know, Soundgarden uh, reunited in 2010, and uh, you know, they put out a record in 2012, King Animal, that was a quite good record. Uh, and they've been touring fairly regularly in recent years. Uh, I saw them in 2013. I thought they were fantastic. Uh, Soundgarden was in the middle of working on a new record. Uh, Temple of the Dog was revived in 2016. Uh, and there were murmurs that there might have been a new Temple of the Dog record in the works. Um, and yet here we are, uh, Chris Cornell suddenly gone uh, and uh, just trying to process that. And, uh, you know, I have Derek here with me. What are your feelings about this, Derek? I mean, we're around the same age. I mean, I, what is the impact, I guess, of this loss for you and on music? Yeah, I mean, process is, is a good word. Uh, you know, my day job is running a radio station. And the mood ar around this building yesterday, like, there were a lot of people just really who were just depressed, kind of finding it hard to, to work. Um, and you know, Chris Cornell, not, not just one of those sort of towering nineties figures, you know, for me, he was the first guy, uh, you know, Soundgarden was putting out records in the, in the eighties. I got louder than love when I was like 14, I think. And, um, that was a, a definitely a gateway into a, a lot of those bands. I, you know, I was listening to hard rock and so, uh, you know, Hearing Louder Than Love kind of opened up a, a whole new world of sort of really, uh, you know, heavy and interesting music. And um, it just, it's one of those things that seems so sudden. Not only were they doing stuff, uh, you know, they were just here. I saw them six days ago now. Yeah. And well, yeah, we're, we're here in Minneapolis and they played here on Saturday, last Saturday. We're recording this on Friday, uh, the 19th. And Cornell, of course, died in, after a show in Detroit. So that was just a couple, a couple days after the Minneapolis show. Yeah, and you saw that gig, and it was a good gig, right? I mean, yeah, it was. It. it was really good, actually. That's, I, uh, that's one of the things I'm having a, a tough time with. Like they sounded great. Chris, in particular, I thought sounded great. His voice was tremendous, and you know, I, I, I was backstage, you know, uh, during a lot of this show. And one of the things that really struck me uh, about it was just the reverence that all of these other uh, rock bands had for Soundgarden. Yeah, that, this was like a festival. Yeah, it was a festival. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, everybody piled onto the side stage 
to watch them play. I, I spent some time with the Pretty Reckless, who were uh, opening up this tour. Um, and, you know, we're in Detroit when all this stuff happened. And they were so unbelievably stoked to be on the road with Soundgarden. Uh, you know, like all their crew wearing Soundgarden T-shirts. And, uh, you know, Taylor was telling me that they listen to Soundgarden to warm up for their own gigs. And, like, they didn't know if, like, is it going to be cool if we warm, you know, if we listen to Soundgarden before we play? Like, <laughs> <laughs> we don't really know what to do. They were, like, remembered where they were when they got the call from their agent that they were going to be on this tour. Like, they were just... So stoked. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about them and just what it must have been like to, you know, to literally be there when you get that news. And it's so sudden. And yeah, it well, just uh, it feels terrible. And you touched on this. I mean, the respect for Soundgarden, you know, to me, they were always the 90s band that people could agree on, you know, because yeah. Nirvana was such a big band that there was backlash against them, you know, for being too popular. Pearl Jam had a similar issue. You know, Alice in Chains, maybe for some people, were too metal. Stone Temple Pilots were, again, too popular, maybe. Uh, but Soundgarden was this band that I think, even if you were sort of skeptical of alternative rock in the 90s or of grunge, they seemed to be a band that you respected, you know, that even those people could respect. And I think part of that had to do with what you said, that they came from the 80s. You know, they, they had roots. You know, they, they had roots with SST. You know, they had that yeah. sort of indie, American indie underground cred from the 80s. Um, but they also just had this sort of like no bullshit mentality to them that it was about the music and it was about sort of connecting with people. And it almost seemed like they became a huge band just because of the momentum of the time. You know, I mean, they, they made that record super unknown, which to me is like the defining record of, of grunge. Like whatever, I mean, grunge as a title is sort of, a misnomer in a lot of ways. It's a marketing term, but it's yeah. still something that we recognize as you know, as a as a thing. Like we know what that is when people say it. And like to me, like if, if an alien landed on Earth and was like, "What is grunge?" I would play them "Super Unknown" because to me, you know, came out in 1994, which was really when that movement was cresting. Um, it has the sound I think that epitomizes grunge uh you know that combination of like sludginess from Black Sabbath that sort of punk attitude you know that black flag attitude and just great pop hooks um you know by that time I think Cornell had developed into really one of the great songwriters of that era and of that scene uh where he could write these sort of enormous rock songs you know that could fill the biggest rooms and could really explode out of radio. And yet there was always uh, a vulnerability at the core. There was always like a, a humanity there. Uh, he could, uh, even when he was screaming, you know, that amazing four octave voice, uh, it wasn't like, uh, like the hard rock front men of the eighties where they were these sort of larger than life people that didn't even seem human. You know, Cornell always had, uh, that human element to him that, even when Soundgarden was at their most sort of Zeppelin-esque, you know, because I always think of them as like the Led Zeppelin of the 90s. Yeah. They had that sort of, uh, you know, breath to their music, that sort of like, uh, ma that majesty to their music. Um, there was still this humanity. There was this guy at the center who was just a guy, you know. He sang like a rock god, but his soul was just this this guy trying to sort of make it in the world. Um, and... Uh, 
you know, we can get into this. Like, we're going to call uh, Hanif here in a minute. But like the thing that makes me sad, I mean, there's many things about this story that are sad. But I fear that now Chris Cornell's career, and, and again, that it's not just Soundgarden, it's also Audio Slave, and he put out many solo records too. I just fear that now the way it ended for him is going to be the frame for everything. You know, yeah. kind of like what happened with Nirvana, where there's a lot of things in Nirvana's music. Um, it's not all sadness. It's not all depression. There's a lot of fun. There's a lot of humor in Nirvana's music. But because of how Kurt Cobain died, it gets reduced down to this sort of Greek tragedy you know, yeah. element. And we all want to be detectives on, well, when did, you know, what, what were the clues that it was going to end this way? You know, that's how people listen to Nirvana's music now. And you can see this already happening with Chris Cornell's music, where people want to, like, go back to, like, well, Fell on Black Days. Oh, ooh, that was a pretty sad song. I wonder if he was thinking of, you know, these thoughts that manifested themselves 23 years later. You know, it, is that going to be the way we listen to these records now? Uh, I, I found that happening yesterday. I was actually on the air playing a bunch of, of his music. And, you know, when you kind of retroactively look at it through the lens of, uh, uh, you know, those lyrics, the, the lyrics on a lot of Soundgarden songs are pretty dark. And, yeah, if that's sort of the postscript of the story, it, it, you can't help sort of find yourself looking for clues. And sometimes not even, like, sometimes it's just there, you know, like bird in my hand, you know, kill your health and kill yourself, kill everything you love, and you're like, Oh man. Right. And or the day I tried to live. Like yeah. songs like this where people are going to go, "Oh, aha. This was, you know, we should have known." But to me, there was always darkness in Soundgarden's music, but I did not feel that they were a downer band. I no, felt yeah. like there was always an element of uplift and like I'm singing about this and I'm talking about it as a way to connect with people and to make them feel less alone, not because I'm just some sad sack person who, uh, you know, is, is sort of wallowing in my own sadness. I, I never got that feeling from Soundgarden's music, and I hope it doesn't become that now. You know, I, 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 that would be my... I think that would be... That would compound the tragedy of what has happened. Yeah. Uh, I mean, particularly, like, you feel like he was... They were on the other path, right? Exactly. That it seemed like he was one of the guys that had made it out and that he was, you know, sort of living this sort of creative, you know post huge fame life where uh you know he, he could go back and make a temple of the dog record you know he did a couple of really great acoustic like solo tours um I mean, and, he had this yeah. great po you know he had a great career with audio slave and then he went through a period where you know he was drinking too much and he got sober and you know soundgarden i always felt like they ended too soon like they kind of burned out after down on the upside in 1997 and then they kind of magically got back together and it was like, oh, we could make up for lost time now. We yeah. can, you know, uh, be the, you know, because they should have been a band that just continued. They just had, because it wasn't just Cornell, obviously. There were other, everyone in that band wrote songs. Every member of that band was important. Um, and man, I, one of the things I was thinking about yesterday, I was just trying to imagine like, what, what is Kim Thale thinking or Matt Cameron? Yeah. Like these guys that have just been with him for so long. Uh, it's sad. It, many things are sad about this. Um, should we call uh, Hanif here? Yeah, let's let's do that. Okay, we're gonna call him up. Um, Hanif wrote a great oh, uh, tribute to Cornell yesterday for MTV, and uh, I know it was a big deal for him. 
you should definitely check that out. I also wrote something for uprocks.com uh, that's up online. Uh, Derek did not write anything. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I just I just blabbed. <laughs> I wrote some Twitter posts. They're lovely. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Hey. Hey, how's it going, man? It's going great. How are you? I'm all right. Hey, so I literally uh, messaged... Hanif, like about 20 minutes ago, and I'm like, can you come on this podcast? And he's like, well, there's people working on my house. I have to find a quiet room. Uh, and he did. So I appreciate you coming on on such short notice. No, it's great. I'm like literally in my uh, bedroom closet. So <laughs> oh, <laughs> quiet. It's the most quiet space here. So you're on with, with me and my uh, producer, Derek, here. And, and we were just talking about, uh, I mean, I was, I was talking about my fear about what is going to happen to Soundgarden's music or, or Chris Cornell's just overall career now that he has passed on in this way. You know, because when you look at Nirvana, for instance, everything kind of gets reduced down to how it relates to Kurt Cobain's suicide. And that becomes sort of the, the, the primary way that we now contextualize his music. And I wonder if that's going to happen now to, to Chris Cornell. And if it does, I think that's a shame because I think there's a lot of things in his music and it shouldn't just be about what happened at the end. Which, by the way, we, we still don't know exactly what happened. There's some questions about what his mindset was at the time. You know, He was taking anxiety medication that may have affected his judgment at the time that uh, he took his own life. But... I don't know. I'm just wondering, like, what are your thoughts on this? I know, I mean, you wrote this beautiful piece. You you called him the best frontman of his era. So, and, and I know that he meant a lot to you personally, his music. Like, what are your thoughts on, on any of this stuff right now? Yeah, so a thing, because I saw a lot, of, um, a lot of that narrative pop up yesterday about uh, him and Cobain. Um, I mean, I think a big difference that people have to, to realize is that he has... Um, because of the timeline, his body of work is so much greater than Kurt Cobain. Uh, and I don't mean in terms of like, I mean, in terms of like actual work, right? I mean, right. He, um, between Soundgarden, Audio Slave, and his solo efforts, um, you know, he, he has a body of work that leads to less what is kind of speculation because he, um, you know, has a body of work that spans decades. Um, right, totally. And, and, and Kurt Cobain, you know, had a really, um, great work, obviously, but an abbreviated, uh, an abbreviated run. I mean, you know, Nirvana's run in the large scope of things was really brief. Um, and even if we, you know, are to buy into this idea that um, had Cobain lived, Nirvana would not have kept, you know, soldiering on. I mean, he still could have had a, a good body of work to build upon. Um, and, and so there's something about the Cobain narrative that's about, like, potential cut short, um that is not necessarily going to be living in the um, Cornell narrative, but but um, I, I think you know personally, uh, you know, as someone who um, struggles with anxiety, as someone who uh, understands the weight of that, um, I was really, I mean, I wrote that piece yesterday morning before the second wave of news came, before the uh, you know before the um, Speculation about suicide became a little more concrete, or the idea became more concrete. Right. Um, and that was really, that was really, that was really, um, 
I don't want to say deflating, but it was a, it was a bit of a, a downer for me because I think, um, not because I think that Chris Cornell, you know, failed uh, in some way, but because I think, um, you know, it's really hard when you when you uh, witness an artist who, over the course of, of their career, is so vulnerable and and so honest with. Um, their struggles, which he was lyrically in his lyrics, absolutely. Um, and, and then those things kind of come back to swallow them. You know, that's really, that's a really hard thing. Right. Yeah. And you know, Derek and I were just talking about that, about how, you know, it seems like in the last 24 hours, there's been this sort of like detective thing that's coming up where people want to go back to old Soundgarden songs and say like, okay, this is the moment, you know, he is talking about what he's going to do like in 20 years later or something. Uh, like the day I tried to live or fell on black days or, or anything like that. And that just makes me sad because I feel like what made his music powerful was that he was trying to connect with people and that in his art he was trying to make sense of what was going on in his head. And that in a way it was a way to sort of maybe elevate himself out of that. You know, I, I mean, the, the sort of like making music as a form of therapy, I mean, that's a cliche, but... I, mean, I do think that, especially now when you hear people talk about it, and yourself included, that th- there was an element that he was able to give a gift to people with his music, you know, where it, it was just someone who kind of understood where they were coming from. It's like a, it's a, it's a lifeline to people who feel alone. And uh, you would hate to think that that becomes diminished now because of what happened later, like years later after he wrote those songs. Yeah, I mean, he did a lot of work. I, I think um, a hallmark of him as a lyricist, as a writer, um, was really trying to reach across the aisle. You know, I mean, I wrote that thing about um, writing as if you're looking at a listener in the eyes. And I think that was his whole, um, that's what I got out of listening to him, was that he was trying to really bridge the gap between performer and performance and, and the listener and someone taking in that performance. Um and so because of that, because he's an artist who um, gave people a lot of personal insight, you know what I mean, into the inner workings of his brain, um, I think that makes a loss more palpable. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, the other element of, of Cornell, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about sort of the soulfulness of his, of his lyrics and, 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 and of his art. There's also the element that he was like this sort of he-man rock star in a lot of ways. I mean, and I, I wrote about this in my piece that I think what defines him in a way is that on one hand, he could be this vulnerable person in, in his lyrics and he could express himself in a very direct way to the listener. But he was sort of encased in this body of like, you know, he was this handsome, long-haired dude with his shirt off, you know, good shape. He had a four-octave range. I mean, he had all the tools of a classic frontman. I mean, like, to me, like a lot of those 90s singers, they were influenced by the 70s, but you couldn't necessarily plug them into a 70s band. Like even Eddie Vedder was yeah. more of like a kind of, like he was kind of like the 70s crossed with like a Michael Stipe type sensibility. But but Cornell, you know, you could, you could imagine him being in Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath or Deep Purple or any of those bands. Like he had the tools that those old school rock singers had with the addition of maybe a more thoughtful sensibility. I mean, yeah, I think he's a better writer than a lot of them, right? And I think, <laughs> right. I mean, I think if you, and I'm, I, I, I slant towards writing, obviously, so I am 
always championing, you know, musicians who are also great writers. And he was a great writer. But I also think that if you ask someone at the dawn of, of the 60s to build, to go into a lab, uh, if we're assuming there were labs in the 60s, I can see this, <laughs> um, to go into a lab and build a timeless rock star, uh, you would get Chris Cornell, right? You would get some, I mean, he had all the tools, like you said, I mean, he could make every throw vocally. Um, but beyond that, aesthetically, he was the aesthetic front man. He was the, like, it to the point where it was almost a caricature, right? Like, right. he was, like, you know, long-haired dude with, like, a shirt unbuttoned and flying in the wind. You know what I mean? But yeah, I mean, was, like, like around Super Unknown era. era, like, he cut his hair and he started wearing shirts more. And I kind of feel like that's because he was in the 90s and it was almost like, oh, you're too much of a rock star. <laughs> you have to kind of dress down or you have to, you know, because it was almost like, it was almost like people couldn't handle, like, how much of a, you know, like you said, like a prototypical rock star he was. It, it blew my mind to, like, find out that he started... Uh, you know, as a drummer, it seems it seems yeah. like so weird that he was behind a drum kit because he's just so naturally a front man. You know, exactly. Hey man, I think I cut you off. What what were you gonna say? Oh, was I gonna say something? Yeah, were you gonna, did I cut you off? No, I was just gonna joke about how uh, you know I think drums are how you know a lot of a lot of lead singers start behind drums. You know what I mean? Like, right. Um, or don't realize you know like Patrick Stump is another one. Although obviously he is like not as comfortable in front of a stage <laughs> as Chris Cornell was. But and I, I wonder what that is about. I wonder what it is about the drums that like that call, you know, call lead singers to start back there. But I, I also think that um I don't know. I mean Soundgarden, um I'm in Columbus right now, Columbus, Ohio. Soundgarden was supposed to be here today, um, playing. And of course they canceled all the shows, but I that thinking about that made me wonder what the I mean they I don't think they can remain a band um, because of how iconic of a front band he was. It was like when, um, you know, when, when Queen uh, recently waited all those years and then attempted to replace Freddie Mercury, uh, it just didn't work, right? It, <laughs> right. It was like so novelty. Um, and NXS did the same thing. NXS had like a reality show. Does anyone remember that? NXS oh, had like a reality show right. to replace Michael Hutchinson. It was like, this is like gimmicky and this doesn't work. And this, you, when you have um, a front man who, uh, I don't want to say that, that Chris Cornell was Soundgarden because I, I, th- I think that's unfair to, to like Kim Bale and, and like the rest of, you know. Um, but I don't think he, I, he's irreplaceable. He may not have been the entirety of the band, but he's irreplaceable in the way that um, Mercury and Hutchins were in, irreplaceable. And I think that... Um, now that we've seen these bands attempt to replace these iconic front men and how poorly it's gone, uh, I, 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 I'm wondering if Soundgarden is just going to close up shop. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, to me, like it's a, it's a non-starter. I mean, I would be shocked if they tried to carry on. I mean, I could see them maybe doing a concert where, like, a tribute concert, where, like, where maybe different people are the lead singer yeah. and they something like that, but. You know, like comparing Soundgarden to say Stone Temple Pilots, for instance, like Scott Weiland passes away and he'd been out of the band for a while. But, you know, the, you know, the, the, the Leo brothers and Weiland didn't get along. So <laughs> I think part of it is like, well, we think we can still carry on because maybe the bond wasn't there. But in Soundgarden, yeah. I really feel like, though, like I can't imagine Kim Thale just being like, no, we got to keep 
touring, you know, or Matt Cameron. I mean, Matt Cameron obviously is in Pearl Jam, yeah. so he uh, he's already pretty busy as it is. But yeah, he's that. Uh, yeah, but like I can't imagine the, the other guys. I think those guys have maybe more of an old school mentality where they would just look at that as cheap if they continued without yeah, Cornell. I mean, in a Soundgarden, like honestly, if Soundgarden shuts it down tomorrow, who is left wanting anything? I mean, have right. they not like given us at least four? I don't want to say classic records, but like four extremely good records. If not, they're in t- you know some could argue that they never made a bad record. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I don't think, I, I, and I and I think. Um, I think you could argue that a band like NXS left people wanting. Um, and, you know, even Queen, perhaps, in some regards, left people wanting. Soundgarden, I, I don't, anyone who came up in the era with Soundgarden, um, you know, Soundgarden was one of the first bands that I really learned to enjoy, and I followed them throughout their whole career. And if they closed up shop tomorrow, I would be... Um, not left desiring anything else from them. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that makes me sad, I guess, is having the option to see them again, you know? And like, you know, Derek and I were talking, you know, we're in Minneapolis, Uh, Soundgarden was in the area last weekend, and like, I knew that they were coming, but I thought it was a later weekend, and I I missed the show. And of course now, you know, like, like if what what happened hadn't had happened, I would have thought, well, okay, they'll probably be here in a couple years, and I could see them then. Of course, now I feel terrible that I didn't go to that show. Um, you know, you just feel like, oh, it'd be cool to see them together again just because they were so good at what they did. Like, there wasn't, they were still a really good band. Um, right. And they were still making good records. So, yeah, there's no unfinished business. Um, but with someone like Cornell, I guess you just always feel that, you know, in the same way that people, like when Prince passed away, it was like, well, he's, he still looks great. He still sounds great. Like, why... You, know, you just thought like a oh, prince is going to be here until he's 80 or, or 90 and that you would still have all these great shows and that you could go to and, and enjoy and uh, with, with you know there just wasn't any appreciable drop off or, or there wasn't a significant drop off with him so you just felt like this is a guy that I can just grow old with I can take my kid to a soundgarden show or whatever um, yeah so like he was gonna be making music for another 30 years and doing it I mean, because he was so good at reinventing himself right Um it seemed like he could effectively and not be like, you know, and I, I think a, a reason why he was so good at reinventing himself because he got very comfortable with that transition from like being one of the biggest rock stars in the world to not being one of the biggest rock stars in the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, as big of a rock star as he was, I don't think he like craved attention necessarily. Yeah. Uh, you don't get that impression from him. You know, uh, I'm just curious, like, what what Soundgarden or, or Chris Cornell music have you been listening to, like, in the past day or so to remember him? Like, what have you been turning to? Uh, so I've been turning to the solo stuff because I feel like no one ever... Um, <laughs> his solo stuff was so, like, uh, maligned and, like, critically panned often. And not only panned by critics, but, like, his peers. Like, I remember when, like, Scream came out. I forgot who it was, but one of his, like, direct peers. Maybe it was, like, Scott Lemon or something. was, like... It was garbage. You know what I mean? It was like tweeting about how garbage it was. And that's the Timbaland record, right? That's the yeah. Timbaland record? Yeah, yeah. The one with like Timbaland and like Justin Timberlake and like John Mayer's on it and like James Fontalori, right? So it's just a very, uh, it sounds like on its on its face, it seems like old man trying to relate to the kids, right? It's one of those <laughs> joints. 
But I think it's like really interesting. I think it's like an interesting risk. I, I think also, I mean, the thing about me that is real is that I, I often reward risk more than actual quality. So, <laughs> um, right. Scream is like right up my alley because it's like, you know, Eddie, you know, it's like, Eddie Vedder wouldn't uh, maybe like hop on a James Fontelroy written track. Um, but I, I, <laughs> I think it's also, safe to say. So I have been listening a lot to, um, he has this unplugged album he did in uh, Sweden, I think, um, in the early 2000s, I believe, or late 90s. Um, and it's just really great. It's just like him and an acoustic guitar. Um, and he plays this beautiful cover of Redemption Song, and he plays this like really risky and fun cover of Billie Jean, and it, you get this vibe. And it's not, you know, it's only audio. I don't know. I'm sure there's video of it that exists somewhere, but all I have is audio. Um, and you get this vibe that he is just really nervous, you know. Um, and you can kind of hear the audience as the show goes on, warming to him more and more and more. When the show starts, the audience is like real tentative and doing like golf claps. Um, and after the cover of Billy Jean, there's just this rapturous applause. And you really get a feel for an artist who is coming into his own as a concert goes on. Chris Cornell, who by that point was a star, had played to millions of people throughout his career. But, you know, stripped down to this acoustic guitar in this small room, he was just like any other guy at an open mic, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that, I, I go, I, I played that. I played through that twice yesterday, and I played through it again this morning. It's my favorite recording of Chris Cornell doing anything. That sounds great. How about you, Derek? Um, yeah, I've been listening to a couple of different things. Um, you know, I, I saw that solo acoustic tour uh, that he did uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and so I was listening to one of those shows. Uh, a lot of that similar vibe. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the single soundtrack, so that song Seasons is... Uh, is a favorite and I've gone back to that a few times. And then the, the temple, of the dog record, just cause it's, you know, it's such an yeah. obvious record about mourning and, and a lot of those things really, uh, have connected with me. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned seasons when I was writing my, uh, obituary yesterday, I just listened to that song on repeat, you know, cause that's always been my favorite Chris Cornell song. You know, again, that's on the single soundtrack and it just seemed so apropos for the moment because it's the song about, it's a song about grief essentially. And it's a, it's about how the world, kind of uh, in a good way and in a bad way it, it just keeps spinning forward no matter what terrible things happen and how that can be a hard thing to deal with but it's also maybe a blessing in some ways and uh, it, that just seemed like a real I mean just his performance on that song I, 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 that song's just always transfixed me I mean the single soundtrack was the first CD I ever bought uh, mm. that and Check Your Head oh, wow. uh, when I was uh that was 14. Good job. So, yeah. Yeah, I was, I, yeah I was, I, single soundtrack had a lot of hits. A yeah, lot of yeah. hits. <laughs> totally. And, uh, but just from that age on, you know, and I remember at the time, you know, uh, Soundgarden, I was, they were just starting to enter my consciousness because I knew them from Bad Motorfinger on. I wasn't old enough or cool enough to know Louder Than Love yet, but I knew Bad Motorfinger. And Seasons was just such a departure from what, uh, I associated with Soundgarden. It, it just totally transfixed me. Isn't it um, cool to have like seasons and birth ritual like on the totally. same record? It's such a great indicator of his range, yeah. you know. And, and that's not a bad um, gateway for people that are wondering like, what's the big deal about Chris Cornell? Like, if you listen to those two songs back to back, that you have this soulful acoustic ballad, and then you just have this like banshee wail 
like mm-hmm. hard rock song. Uh, just so it shows his range. Um, you know, and I'm also going to say Down on the Upside is a record I've been turning to. That's always been a secret favorite record of mine, even though I feel like at the time it was underappreciated. Um, but there's just, I think, so many... Uh, there's, there's so many great songs on there. I think that his melodic sense it, it was always a touch uh, underappreciated, uh, you know, because I think Soundgarden was associated with, uh, they were sort of almost lumped into like the alt metal camp, like with, with Alice in Chains a little bit. Right. But like he was a tunesmith, like he wrote really good melodies. And like that record, you know, with like Blow Up the Outside World has always been one of my favorite songs. And that's almost like this sort of Beatlesque. esque thing you know which of course you know black hole sun is the most obvious example of that aspect of his songwriting but i feel like even like euphoria morning like that that solo record has kind of some beatlesque things to mm-hmm. it um you know he he was just really good at that too uh i don't know there's just i i always feel like there was more facets to what he did than maybe he got credit for at the time and i I hope that that's the direction that we go in with appreciating his art rather than reducing it down to, you know, like the, this sort of tragic story about how he ended up. Uh, because I think there's more to him than that. And there's a lot of uplift and, uh, and uh, you know, just like a lot of goodness, I think, in his music. That, and I hope people continue to get that from what, uh, when they listen to it. Definitely, yeah. Um, well, guys, you know, I want to thank you you both here for talking about this. Uh, this is obviously a momentous thing. Uh, definitely wanted to make sure that we marked it somehow, you know. So for listeners here, if there's, if there's any memories that you have of Cornell or any, or any songs that you're turning to, uh, please hit me up on Twitter. It's CellarockPod uh, is the username. I definitely want to hear your thoughts on this. Um, but guys, thanks again for both uh, for your thoughts and your memories here, and uh, keep on listening to Cornell. Keep his music alive. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Bye.